Hello, everyone. We welcome you to our Sunday morning roundtable discussion. We're so glad you could join us. And we are recording from the Plainfield Christian Science Church Independent in Plainfield, New Jersey, the United States of America. And we will start with our morning prayer. I'm reading excerpts from page 49 and 50 from the Divinity Course and General Collectania. No aggressive mortal suggestion can cause me to forget my duty to God, to our leader, or to mankind. Mind is unlimited in its source and supply. Man's substance is in mind and cannot be impoverished. There is no poverty, no lack. Fear is no part of consciousness. Consciousness is cognizant only of the things of God good. There is no reality in discord. God's child cannot suffer and be unhappy because God is the only power and he never made anything but love and peace. I am exempt from want, loss, lack or limitation of any kind. There is no material resistance that can limit me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Mm. I'm very How perfect is that? (laughs) Thank you, Florence. That's beautiful. Okay, Karen, the watching point. Um, Watch number 231. Watch lest you conclude that Jesus' demonstration in feeding the multitude was primarily intended to prove that a son of God has miraculous powers. Was he not proving that all food comes from God in spite of the testimony of matter to the contrary, that it is a gift of God and that the fields and streams from which it seems to come are no more its source then the ventriloquist dummy is the source of the voice that seems to come from it. Our leader withheld many important facts from those who were not ready for them. She was merely waiting for their spiritual growth so that they might be ready for her to reveal these deep things to them. Among these was this fact concerning food. No miracle could ever make food come from God in one instance, unless in reality all of it does. Demonstration does not make food come from God. It opens man's eyes to see this fact. We can say to the fields and streams, you may appear to the senses to be the source of my food, but Jesus is feeding the multitude proved for all time that food comes from mind. Thank you. Comments on that? Well, when I go to listen to something on the website and uh, the YouTube advertisements come up, so many of them are about food (laughs) and what it can or cannot do. To you and there's just so much 
thought about food. I, it's just remarkable to me how we've made a god out of it to either hurt us or keep us alive. And um, it really is uh, remarkable how, because growing up, we didn't even think about We just ate what we ate. But now it's, um, man, it's, it's really, it's really a, a very, it's tempting a temptation for people to make it a god. I know. I grew up on Wonder Bread and Kool Aid, and it didn't seem to harm me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I wonder how people say grace before dinner. Yeah, I, mean, I started I too. Yeah, good. Yeah. I, I grew up in a household where where we never said grace. We just sort of sat down and started eating. And then uh, when I got to Plainfield, Mrs. Evans insisted that we thank God for the food in front of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that changed, that helped change my attitude, helped me understand this concept a little bit better. And, you know, Mrs. Eddy insisted on it, too, or she said she could no more not do it. She was raised doing it, giving Thanks. And I, I find it so interesting on the chosen, you know, that anytime they eat anything, even just an apple, and, and they don't, they, they thank God for it. And everything they do, that's the unceasing prayer that we must incorporate in our own lives as well. For our own benefit. Yeah. Not God's benefit, but for us. So I, I sort of grew up in a complete opposite. We we had a standard grace that we said, but it was the same darn thing every meal. So it became mindless. Just absolutely mindless. Yes. So um, saying the same thing over and over from in my entire childhood, I mean, <laughs> uh, it has no meaning. So we got to think about when we say a grace, you know, what kind of meaning, right? So That's right. And... Um, no one teaches us how to do a grace, right? Obviously, right? Because uh, yeah. whether you don't say grace or you say the same darn thing over and over, I mean, no one's really taught us. I mean, so we should think about that. Like, how do you say a grace? Um, if you're in other churches, I mean, you can't take a lot of guidance on how to say a grace. Like, how go about, about go, how to go about it, right? Well, when I was so growing I heard, up, yeah, yeah. When I was growing up, we always said grace, and it was... Father, bless this food to our use and us to thy service, and make us ever mindful of the wants of others. In Christ's name, amen. Yes, that's it. That's, well, we have Pastor Shardy with us. She always gives us a very inspired <laughs> grace when we're together, and that's how you do it. It should be different, and it should be inspired. And Shardy, when she says grace, she, she meets the need of the day, whatever that need might be. She mentions it. And um, so that's how you do it. You ask God and have it inspired. Uh, As with everything, it should never be mere words. It should never be mere words. Dead ceremony. Who else? Well, I think all good, if we knowing that all good comes from one source, God, then we give in thanks for every good that comes to us, including food, obviously. And yeah. that's is the same thing. I, I was thinking of the last 
part here where it talks about demonstration does not make food come from God is the same as uh, our health. We look, we do not demonstrate our health. Therefore, we're going to look at you know how is the body doing. It's opening our eyes. The source is from God. Health is from God. Therefore, it's it's the right mind that we need to be in so that our eyes will be opened to see the good that God has given. Thank you. And that is living our oneness with him and separability from him. And, and so, and if, knowing that food is from God, it can't cause allergies or stomach upsets or anything else, can it? It maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it. You can say all kinds of different prayers. It also, it can't make you too fat. I mean, who says that food makes you fat? I, I don't believe God ever said that. I no, think we believe that. <laughs> it's a belief. It's a belief. We need to eat wisely and, and not glutton with gluttony, but... Um, yeah, it can only bless us. And this, of course, goes back to our subject, substance, because our supply is in, is in spirit, in God, and all things are substance, spirit. And uh, it can be a, a tricky one to understand. So, let's see. You can read the golden text for us, Lil. Riches and honor are with me, yea, durable riches and righteousness. Thank you. Jasmine on the forum wrote, Initially it was hard going to advance against my own beliefs, struggling with Mary Baker Eddy's declaration that spirit is the only substance. Now, though, I accept as my rock of truth that all substance, all intelligence, all consciousness is spirit. Moreover, I rejoice not only I am included in the allness of God, I am made of the very substance of God like unto it. Yet not by might nor by power, but by my spirit do I give this grace amid the greatest temptation in the world, personal glory. So <laughs> there we go. That's what that was brings us down out of the divine substance of spirit into becoming material mortal beings. We want to have this selfhood apart from God. We want to have personal glory. We want to be the ones that are so smart. And whoops, that'll take us down where we don't want to go. So what are durable riches? And why is it in the same phrase as righteousness? What is durable? Is it an honesty, you know, compassion, love? All those things are more durable. They are durable. And that's, I feel that's why it goes with the righteousness. Yeah. And Mrs. Eddy's definition of substance, right? That which is mm -hmm. immortal, not subject to decay. Truth, life, and love are substance. Those are our substance. Mm -hmm. And, and, and as Mary said, you know, it can be a real challenge to get to where you recognize that. Yes. And in that, Mrs. Eddy's saying that to acknowledge that God 
to be the source of all good, and this is a paraphrase, will do more for you than any other thing could. And she says, not just once in a while, but all during the day, moment by moment, seeing God as the source of all good. Now, something that helped me understand, get a better sense of substance, is something that Kenrick wrote about on the forum. And he's here, right? Yes. Yes. Do you want to speak to that, Kenrick? Oh, I'll let you lead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, he quotes um, Mrs. Eddy, and and that is her and miscellaneous writings, questions and answers. And this is why we must study our books, our prose work, as well as science and health. And she answers the question: Is it correct to say a material to say of material objects that they are nothing and exist only in imagination? Now, right, th- this is what I used to wonder. So, is this all just nothing? And part of the, her answer is that Kenrick wrote. In our immature sense of spiritual things, let us say of the beauties of the sensuous universe, I love your promise and shall know sometime the spiritual reality and substance of form, light, and color of what I now through you discern dimly. And knowing this, I shall be satisfied. Mm -hmm. So it's so beautifully written, the whole answer to that question. And when I was struggling with it, that kind of lightened up on the page to understand that. And that is righteousness. Because it, it's acknowledging what is right. And it doesn't come in a moment. It doesn't all of a sudden, you know, hey, I, I know everything now. You know, it doesn't come that way. And that's why I think Mrs. Eddy says, emerge gently from matter into spirit. You can't understand something that you don't prove for yourself. So test things. Prove it for yourself. And don't condemn yourself for taking time with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. You unfold. It's unfoldment, not accretion. It's all within. uh, And... You know, we were taught here, too, when you brush your teeth to say the scientific statement of being, to know, I am not material, I am spiritual, the substance of my teeth, spirit. Therefore, it is not subject to discord and decay. Um, and I think it's on page 15 of Mrs. Evans' book about lectures and articles. She, she speaks of someone who was healed of a serious tooth problem when it was told to her that in science and health, Mrs. Eddy always, um, almost always, not always, but discord and decay come together. So if you're having any problem with any kind of a decay, ask yourself, is there discord in your life? And work to get rid of that. But knowing your substance is in spirit, that means no decay of anything. you're immortal. You're an immortal being. The scientific statement of being. You are the image and likeness of God. Therefore, you are not material. You are spiritual. Your durable riches, which is your life, which is the truth that governs your life, which is the love 
that governs your life can never decay, ever. Yes. And along with that, Kenrick also wrote about Martha Wilcox, and that was also for me what helped explain uh, this sense of what is matter. Um, he mentions the article Supply. Supply's wonderful to understand substance better, that article. Also scientific translations. But in that, she says, insufficient supply is a disease as much as as much so as insufficient health. You know, we accept, and, and some religions even say, oh, it's better, you know, to live sparsely or not have a lot. Well, it, it's, it's the love of money. It's the idea that you are, are worshiping it in some way, and you put it above everything else. That's the problem. If you use your riches to bless mankind... It will come to you. If you demonstrate the science properly, you will have supply as much as you will have health. But it is very important not to settle in with that. This isn't what they now call this, what's it called, prosperity religion? Yeah, uh-uh, no, no, no. And sadly enough, that's happened, or we've seen it happen in the organization where people just have gotten very, very wealthy. And then it's a very big temptation to stagnate. You, you don't want to end up like Scrooge at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, to live sparsely, we don't really need much, but it's not right not to have enough. And I think that's the distinction. And there's no haves and haves nots. God loves everyone. It's just people have been taught that they don't have enough or that they have to get it by warring or fighting with their neighbor or stealing. Or God gives to all abundantly. Um, Carrie found a beautiful article, which will be in the March Liberator by Tomlinson called abundance or something to that effect the the uh, liberator for March the theme is the 23rd Psalm and it is just a beautiful magazine so far and I think it's something that in this week's lesson it's emphasized the 23rd Psalm which we are going to get into because it is a powerful Psalm but the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want and Tomlinson brings out that we do have an abundant God, an abundant God. And while I'm thinking of it, the next liberator, since these Psalms have been so beautiful, is going to be Psalm 121 for our researchers out there. And I do want to say, too, all of you are doing such a beautiful job demonstrating your positions, whether it's proofing, researching, writing, testifying translating um i'm so very grateful for that you're using the science and that's what makes this church what it is it's not one any one individual it's all of you working together with love for the science for mrs eddie for christ jesus and god of course 
Also in that article, Supply, it says, Jesus did not go anywhere to get the loaves and fishes. He turned at once to his own mind for his needed supply. Jesus knew that loaves and fishes were purely mental. They were thought forms or forms of thought. He knew that each individual consciousness already included loaves and fishes and all other good as well. Jesus proved in this demonstration that we already are the infinite supply that God is being. And as was said in the watching point, he did it. He proved it for all mankind. And then in the lesson, we also have a the beautiful story of the demonstrating of water, right? The water mm-hmm. of Moses. And then Anne on the forum, she wrote, from a century of Christian science healing. I'll have Gary read it. Um, From a century of Christian science healing, page 122. At Munda, on New Georgia, during more than two weeks of incessant fighting, I was cared for and saved from fear. We had been fighting for a number of days and were out of water. Many were being wounded, and many others were going off the front carrying the wounded. Few men were left to hold ground. One, our nearest source of drinking water, was nearly five miles behind us, from which we had been cut off. The jungles were streaming hot. We had not been without water for we had been without water for hours and faced going without it all night. This was a human need, and all realized it. Each turned to God in his own way. Indeed, all men pray under circumstances like this. I stepped off the trail and sat down to pray. It was up to God, and I just let it be up to him. Soon afterward, an artillery shell of our own, intended to blast the enemy ahead of us, fell short and hit on the trail, hurting no one. Water gushed out of the hole. Our need was met. We were all grateful and praised God to one another. We didn't feel that any miracle had occurred. This was just natural. As I left the front a day or so later, I found a small Bible on the trail. Having lost my own, I picked it up eagerly. The water incident had been continually in my thoughts since it occurred. I opened the Bible at random and my eyes fell on the 35th verse of Psalm 107, quote, He turneth the wilderness into a standing water, and dry ground into water springs, end quote. Isn't that so beautiful? My gosh. Thank you, Anne, for sending that, Anne in England. What a beautiful testimony. And that is true for every everywhere when you're you have that great need and you pray like that it does come whatever the need is just have to trust so and also i wanted to read these are very important things from mary baker eddie your spiritual footsteps volume one precepts oh excuse me (laughs) thank you carol that's most important precepts um Talking about Mrs. Evans. <laughs> oh, goodness. This is Eddie. <laughs> I'm having a moment here. This is Eddie. She constantly heard the cry of the poor, the sick, 
the unhappy, the sinner. And out of the wealth and overflow of her demonstration, she ceaselessly fed them, as Joseph when he was the custodian of the grain which he had gathered during the seven years of plenty in Egypt, fed the nations who were starving during the seven years of famine. This was the reason for Mrs. Eddy's growth. Students today do not grow faster because out of their abundance of spiritual good, they do not realize that much of what has been given them was for the purpose of sharing, not withholding. Lack of giving will stellify growth. And then work for God's children without hope of material reward is more surely paid for than anything else one might do. Therefore, no one can lose by giving more time to help humanity. If one works for humanity, he establishes a demonstration thought towards the world that inevitably brings him his reward, as well as it fits him to handle the universal claim of animal magnetism directed against him. Interesting, work done for God's children without hope of material reward is more surely paid for than anything else one might do. And, you know, we deprive people of it when we don't let them come to that and realize it and work unselfishly for God and find their reward in giving. When we just give, 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 people miss that. These are such deep thoughts, and most people don't understand them. Um, and that's why I thank God every day for our early workers. And then... I guess that was it for now. So, well, and, it, and it's it's also one of the most important lessons we can give our children, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Because so many children, you know, don't find a good career or have difficulty finding a career or worry about finding a career. And I think that this is largely the answer. It, each of us can do something for mankind. Each of us has some talent. And if children were are taught to use their talents to help to help people, they will find a natural career that will provide them with everything they ever need. And it doesn't require an Ivy League education 99.9% .9 of the time. <laughs> No, it, and this is been over and over again. You just be an observer of life and you'll see it. Those who give with the right motive do get back. Um, one other quote from Precepts, that no matter how affluent the demonstration of an individual Christian scientist may be, if he stagnates in a selfish and self-centered satisfaction, he is not much better off than if he had never begun his spiritual journey since he experiences the same mortal destiny as the rest of humanity. If several groups of people start for the North Pole, those who get within a few hundred miles of the gold are not much better off than those who never started. So. Are those pages going to be on the round table? Yeah, on the round table. 
And that article by Tomlinson was called Overflowing Abundance, and it will be in our next um, our next liberator coming out. So, and then along with that, Louise found something so important. And again, this is what we were taught here by Mrs. Evans, but this is from Joseph Mann, 1903. I'll let Gary read it to just that first paragraph or the first part. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> it starts by quoting, divine love always has met and always will meet every human need. In his article with this quote as its title from the 1903 journal, Joseph Mann shares his wonderful new burst of light. Quote, recently, while earnestly conversing with a fellow student about the urgent want seen and felt everywhere outside of Christian science. The above oft-repeated and overflowing quotation from our textbook brought to me a new burst of light. Having in mind relief from some pressing circumstances, human necessities as judged from the standpoint of the physical senses, my friend, with the usual complacent and selfish expectation, quoted this well-proved and unselfish promise. While in deep reflection, and almost before realizing what I was saying, I answered, Yes, divine love meets every human need, and the human need is to love, and always to reflect love. What I could tell the unfolding to me of the spirit and substance of that text since this new dawning, the difference between my present sense of those inspired words and my past is the difference between selfish selflessness and selfishness. Now, my every need is to strive for and to gain that true sense of love, which is the reflection of love, of God. Blessed is that mortal who seeth his brother's need and supplieth it, seeking his own in another's good. Now, now, you know, for years you think, well, divine love will meet every need. So you're just expecting divine love to plop something down in your lap and your need will be met. And then you wonder sometimes why it doesn't happen. Sometimes it might. Sometimes it does happen, depending on where you are, what your motive is. But this is saying, <laughs> how about your expression of divine love? Look into that. If you have a great need, maybe you need to express more divine love. Love is always, love is the liberator, right? Love, yeah. more. In in the story of Jesus. Well, and this gets back to. In the story of Jesus feeding the multitude, it says he was moved with compassion toward them. Right? It was his love. It was a compassion that was able to bring up the loaves and fishes that were needed. It was his love that was able to turn the water into wine. Always love the feeling of it. He couldn't not do it. He couldn't not do it, yes. Go ahead. Well, and that gets back to what Mary quoted from Martha Wilcox at the beginning, where she says that a lack 
is a disease, you know, lack of, you know, something, poverty, just as much as a lack of health. And what does Mrs. Eddy say about a lack of health or disease? Too soon we cannot turn. Right? From disease, disease in, the body. in the body to find disease in the mortal mind and its cure in working for God. Well, that's the cure for poverty as much as anything else. Thank working you. for God. Whatever way you can. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the lesson says, absorbed in material selfhood, we discern and reflect, but faintly, the substance of life or mind. It's a very powerful sentence. It's like the Elisha story where the, the woman had only one, a little bit of uh, meal left, but he gave first. When he did it for the prophet, there come. He never lacked. She never lacked. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. So, but when we are so absorbed in ourself, in our life, and what we need and what we want and all of that, when we totally miss what others might need, totally lacking in love, just all selfish desires, we will never understand the science or what true substance is. And we will often feel as though we were lacking. Yes. So you take that one talent, and uh, and whether you know it or not, you do have a you have talents, and certainly one is to love. Maybe you haven't exercised it yet, but God made us to love. So learn to love, and you will learn everything, all that you need. Jesus taught, brought his disciples over to to uh, when the widow's mite, and when she gave her. Gave of her want instead of her abundance. He thought it was such an important lesson. He called his disciples over to show to teach them the mm -hmm. lesson that um, yeah. what she what she gave had much more importance and was greater than what people had put in from their abundance. Was, Thank you. And you can bet that she never feels want. Yeah. Yeah. And she didn't know where the money was, you know, she, she didn't know where the money was going. They may have, but it, that wasn't important. It was out of her desire and her knowing that it was, that was more important that she gave than what they were going to be doing with it. Yes. And, and, you know, let us know all these truths for ourselves but, and for all mankind now, and all nations, and all those in want, and all those that seem to be warring, this is the truth that is needed. This is the only truth that will answer any of these problems. And just put that benediction on the world, always as we're working. And, and it will reach its, those receptive to it. And it will be, bring great blessings. Thank you. Now, there was something I'd been looking for a long time. I'd found this a long time ago, and then I couldn't find it again. And 
I was so glad to find it. And it, it's not written by a Christian scientist, but it has so many beautiful things about the 23rd Psalm. And it's called The Healing Power of the 23rd Psalm, and it's by a Charles Allen. And I'm, I'm just going to share some things with you about it. Um, it starts off, it says, a man I admired came to see me many years ago. He started with his company at the bottom, but with determination to get to the top, he had unusual abilities and energy, and he used all, all he had. Today's president of his company, and he has all the things that go with this position. Yet, along the way, he was left, he left out something, and one of the things he did not achieve is happiness. He was a nervous, tense, worried, and sick man. Finally, his physician suggested that he talk with a minister. I guess that was his minister. So said, we talked of how his physician had given him prescriptions and he had taken them. Then I took a sheet of paper and wrote out my prescription for him. I prescribed the 23rd Psalm five times a day for seven days. I insisted that he take it just as I prescribed. He was to read it the first thing when he awakened in the morning, read it carefully, meditate meditatively and prayerfully. Immediately after breakfast, he was due to do exactly the same thing. Also immediately after lunch, again after dinner, and then finally the last thing before he went to bed. He says, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a man is what he thinks about all day long. Marcus Aurelius said, a man's life is what his thoughts make it. And the Bible says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. The 23rd Psalm is a pattern of thinking. And when a mind becomes saturated with it, a new way of thinking and a new life are the result. It contains only 118 words. One could memorize it in a short time. In fact, most of us already know it. But its power comes not from memorizing the words, but rather thinking the thoughts. Take the 23rd Psalm as I prescribe, and in seven days, a powerful new way of thinking will be deeply and firmly implanted within your mind, and that will bring marvelous changes in your thinking and give you a new life. Now, this is the renewing of your mind. All of us start out with so many, well, negative, fearful thoughts. And what we need to do is renew our mind. And this is, this is the prescription of how to do it. And you can take, and we do, we take many different things from the Bible or science and health. And it doesn't take a lot of things. 23rd Psalm is powerful. It is a complete treatment. And he makes a point of saying, you know, don't, you can't, you wouldn't take all your medication in the morning. <laughs> you know, he says, do it, do it like I told you breakfast before and after lunch after dinner before you go to bed and meditate on it don't just say the words but really think it think what it means and this is eddie put this on the end of the apocalypse chapter i thought that was interesting we're yes studying that. Mm -hmm. we're studying that thank yeah. you yes then he goes on he takes the, the different verses of it and one about he maketh me lie down in green pastures. He says he ended up, you know, on his back in the hospital one. And his pastor came and said, 
Charles, I have only one thing to say to you. He maketh me to lie down. <laughs> if you don't take enough time to do your prayerful work and study, then God will make you do it. <laughs> yeah, you'll find yourself in a situation, and it says, "Surely study the lives of great people, and you will find every one of them drew apart from the hurry of life for rest and reflection." Great poems are not written on crowded streets. Lovely songs are not written in the midst of clamoring multitudes. Our visions of God come when we stop. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes God puts us on our backs in order to give us a chance to look up. So don't ever despair. Whatever situation you're going through, you can make it, turn it into, make a lemon into lemonade, as they say. And then, I mean, there's so many things that were in this, but there was one, too. This was on, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Henry Ward Beecher said that the 23rd Psalm is the nightingale of the psalms. The nightingale sings its sweetest when the night is the darkest. Mm -hmm. I have suggested to many people in the valley of the shadow that they get off by themselves in a quiet place, quit struggling for a little while, forget the many details, stop your mind for a little while from hurrying on to the morrow and to the next year and beyond. Just stop. Become still and quiet, and in the midst of your glen of gloom, you will feel a strange and marvelous presence, more powerfully than you have ever felt it before. Many have told me of the feeling of that presence, of hearing the nightingale singing sweetly in the darkness. Wherever my pathway leads, I will not be afraid, said David, and countless multitudes also have rid him of fear. Why? For thou art with me. There is power in his presence. You know, we have a, a, there's a journal article called Songs in the Night, and that's from the Bible too. God gives songs in the night. So even in our most difficult times, those songs are there. That's why the hymns are so healing. We got a report of various things that are being read and listened to on our website. The hymns are always one of the most popular. It's always helpful to sing a song of praise to God. So, and then I like this too. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Quit predicting disaster for your world and yourself. <laughs> so let's just quit it right now, because that's what's going on. It's been going on for a while. We're predicting, oh, all this horrible stuff's going to happen. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Begin the morning with hope. Plant this firmly in your mind. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And they will. And then this lovely thing at the end. Um, there is a story, I do not know its source, of an old man and a young man 
on the same platform before a vast audience of people. A special program was being presented. As a part of the program, each was to repeat from memory the words of the 23rd Psalm. The young man was trained in the best speech technique and, a, and drama and gave in the language of the ancient silver-tongued orator the words of the psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. When he had finished, the audience clapped their hands and cheered, asking him for an encore so that they might hear again his wonderful voice. Then the old man, leaning heavily on his cane, stepped to the front of the same platform and in a feeble, shaking voice repeated the same words, The Lord is my shepherd. But when he was seated, no sound came from the listeners. Folks seemed to be praying in silence. And then the young man stood up to make the following statement. Friends, he said, I wish to make an explanation. You asked me to come back and repeat the psalm, but you remained silent when my friend here was seated. The difference? I shall tell you. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. Oh. <laughs> I can't help. I will tell you all now that our dear Jim passed on about a week ago. And I can't say this psalm without thinking of him. Very often after a testimony, he would say, thank you, shepherd. <laughs> his, his joy for life and his love. Um, and he lived into his 99th year and only till the very, very, very end. Was there any pain? I don't think he ever took any medication. He was always a joy everywhere he went. He was a true example of living love and living Christian science. And I'm so grateful Bruce was able to go out and be with him, express the Christ, help him with his finances, and um, see him on his way. God bless him. Yes, now. Yes, yes. He's graduated, as they say. <laughs> All right, and then this goes on. This Psalm of David has sung its way across the barriers of time, race, and language. For 25 centuries, it has been treasured in the hearts of people. Today, it is more beloved than ever before. The reason it lives, not just because it is great literature, because it tells that above all the strife and fears, the hungers and weaknesses of mankind, there is a shepherd. A shepherd who knows his sheep one by one, who is abundantly able to provide, who guides and protects, and at the close of the day opens the door to the sheepfold, the house not made with hands. In the quietness of the South Pole, Admiral Byrd suddenly realized he was not alone. That assurance caused faith to well up within him. And even though he stood in the coldest cold on the face of the earth, he felt a comforting warmth. The 23rd Psalm gives men that same assurance. That is why it lives in the hearts of men, regardless of race, color, or creed. So we can imbibe that beautiful psalm in our lives. It will change everything. We are so blessed to have all this wonderful, wonderful things that we can live with. Now we will end with this beautiful poem 
I do believe we've had it in our magazine before, but it's certainly well, well worth having again. It's by Louise Knight Wheatley, and it's from a 1909 Christian Science Journal. You are sick, they said. Read the title. Um, the title is, The Inhabitant Shall Not Say, I Am Sick. <laughs> By Louise Knight Wheatley. You are sick, they said, but that isn't the truth. And the woman shook her head. The Bible declares, He that dwelleth in God shall not say, I am sick, she said. And she held to the truth through a starless night till the morning proved that her words were right. You are tired, they said, but she smiled at that. How can I be tired, said she, when the only work is work for God, and he is my life, you see. And she quietly went her busy way with a happy song in her heart all day. You are poor, they said, but she only thought, how little they know. God speed the day when the world awakes to find that love is the only need. And she still maintained as her fortune grew, not money, but love, if they only knew. The next page. <laughs> Gary's crying, so I said, take a moment. <laughs> You're afraid, they said, but she whispered low, as if talking to someone near. Father, since love is the only power, what is there left to fear? And giving her hand to that unseen guide, she crossed through the waters at his side. You are sad, they said, but a brave heart shone through the glimmer of tears unshed. And the answer came... We are told to rejoice, to rejoice evermore, she said. And she faced her grief with such steady eyes that the world looked on in a dazed surprise. For the world knows not of the peace that comes to a soul at one with God. It is only those who are toiling on in the, past, in the path the master trod who can feel through the dark that loving hand and holding it fast can understand. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.